Coming to you from the mountain fortress of pop culture. You're listening to Time to Talk. Artists seem to get in the way of the music. Get out of the way of the music. Welcome to the Time to Talk Fortress, where it is wet, damp, and moist. Which, coincidentally, sounds like lyrics for where life begins. Now, possibly, the only problem with Madonna's I'm Breathless is this. Yes, try playing that during a Christmas family event. Can you just imagine the unsettled look on Uncle Rodney's face? Trust me, there are people out there listening right now who know exactly what I'm talking about. Even though 1990s I'm Breathless is widely celebrated, here's a question for you and for our panel. Without Vogue, would it have enjoyed the commercial success that it did? Vogue, a track that has absolutely no artistic relationship to the I'm Breathless project, it wasn't even featured in the Dick Tracy film, was the lead single for the album, and as any pop fanatic can tell you, it was a monster mega hit. In fact, it was so big that it shifted the pop world entirely and continues to resonate to this day. And on the back of Vogue, this album sold around 7 million copies worldwide, which really ain't bad for a fairly niche soundtrack featuring three flamboyant tracks written by the legendary musical theatre master Stephen Sondheim. In the fortress with me tonight, Will and Simon. Welcome, my friends. Hiya. Will, it is really awesome to have another Australian person on our panel. In fact, it might be a first, I've got to say. Oh. I know. How good is that? <laughs> that is very, awesome. Very international panel. Very <laughs> international panel. It's good to be in the same time zone as someone for a change. I can imagine. Tell us, tell us a little bit about Will. Uh, okay, so uh, my name is Will Hodges. I work at uh, a community non-government, not-for-profit, making sure that uh, – you guys, when you party hard, you party safe. Um, I have been a dancer since I was 15 um, and have performed at Mardi Gras uh, with Jessica Malboy, opened for Cher, um, have just had this really up and down interesting life around musical theatre as well as music performance and music videos and all that stuff and that whole world. So I guess, um, yeah, that's, that's it really. Hey, Will, yeah. did you say in amongst that incredible resume, did you say you opened for Cher? Yeah, so um, the community group dances uh, for Mardi Gras two years ago were the first ones uh, we opened at midnight at the Royal Horton, and then after us came Cher. Wow, you really did open for Cher. Yeah, yeah. Amazing. Yeah, yeah, she's so tall. <laughs> Simon, you are a huge Madonna fan. And you are here. There's nothing wrong, is there, Simon, with liking Danny Minogue over this side and then Madonna over this side. But that's okay, isn't it? It feels a bit wrong, but is it okay? (laughs) Of course it is. (laughs) Of course it is. I can like like whatever I want. Well, well, if you actually hear this, that is actually the CD CD cover and CD that I actually have of I'm Breathless. 
what can you tell us about I'm Breathless there, Will? I mean, what, what do we know about its background? And more importantly, what do you think of it? The fact well, that you're holding it is amazing. Well, the f- like, okay, so being a musical theatre geek that I am and Stephen Sondheim did com- uh, compose three songs. In fact, one of them went on to win, I believe it was an Emmy and it was Sooner or Later that won that year, um, which is, is remarkable for a, as you said before, a niche soundtrack, being that soundtracks. Oscar. Yeah, Nascar, thank you. Um, that uh, comes secondary, which is awesome um, because Stephen Sondheim is a great, great man who deserves all the recognition he gets. Um, so that's awesome as far as I'm concerned. <laughs> I've got to ask Simon, because you're our musical theatre expert or one of them on our panel, Stephen Sondheim, for mm-hmm. people who tune into this who are pop fanatics, might not know who he is, which might ruffle your feathers a bit, but tell us why is he important he was the first musical theatre writer to not stick to the sort of standard form. So um, musical theatre writing up, up until Stephen Sondheim came on the scene sort of properly writing his own stuff was very formulaic. Mm-hmm. And there wasn't really anyone that was taking risks. Um, and his stuff is very kind of normally quite inaccessible for the sort of standard Broadway music and he hit the stories that he was writing about were non-linear and yeah, he just, he was just a massive breath of fresh air. He was the first sort of musical theater artist really, I think in the sense that everything that he did was, um, was incredibly artistic and had like a different point of view. To oh. So, so can, I, really can I jump in there? Like, although you were absolutely, totally, totally correct in in all that about Sondheim, um, you can't let go of someone like, you know, a Gower Champion or Jerome Robbins from West Side Story who also played with time signatures and did things that were really sort of out of the box as well. Sondheim was the one who really made Jerome money Robbins from it. Well, Jerome Robbins is a choreographer. Yeah, and, dir- so, and director. Leonard, Bern- Leonard Bernstein wasn't really a musical theatre writer. That's the true. That's why West Side Story is so interesting. Yeah. Obviously, Sondheim wrote the lyrics of West Side Story. Mm. So, you know, it's I, West Side Story is an interesting one, but then West Side Story is still quite, in comparison to a lot of Sondheim stuff, is still Formulaic, quite yeah, absolutely. Totally. And the one thing we all can agree on is that Madonna went from, you know, pop-tastic off the back of Like a Prayer and then walks into this world uh, again, always with something to prove, wanting to prove that she can A, act, <laughs> lobbied, lobbied for this part in Dick Tracy and even took um, industry wage to do it. That's how um, keen she was to get her hands on this one. But for the actual soundtrack, she had to uh, prove that she was able to jump into character, to sing in, in, a, in a style that she'd never done before. And I found this really interesting. This is from an interview around the time when she first sat down with Stephen Sondheim and uh, she's, he's, I assume, on a piano there, right, and he's playing over songs. You can just imagine this setting, right? You've got him there. He already thinks not much of Madonna because I've read that too. He thinks mm, she carries on like a prima donna. Hmm. I'm sure she did. I think he accused her of important itis is the way he described it. Anyway, 
So you're sitting there tinkering away and she says, it was just unbelievable. When I first got them, the songs, I sat down next to him and he played them for me and I was just dumbfounded. And then forget about making them my own just to learn to sing them. The rhythmic changes and the melodic changes, it was really tough. I had to go to my vocal coach and get an accompanist to slow everything down for me because I could hardly hear the notes. You know what I mean? So it was a real (laughs) challenge and they definitely grew on me. So I love actually there's very few times in Madonna's career where you can hear any essence of humility but around Evita there was some humility and here again she's saying you know what these songs were challenging they weren't repetitive they were sophisticated and they were hard to learn and I had to go to a vocal coach but I was determined to challenge it a little bit of humility in there which is awesome who would have thought because these these are probably especially more and sooner or later are probably two of the most accessible songs that Stephen sometimes ever written yep like they're kind of easy yep for him and uh, what can you lose is a bit more interesting because it's got, a, yeah, the, the kind of the notes are a little bit more all over the place. But the other two are quite standard, really. So I, I don't know if maybe she got the version that she did at the Oscars first and then they kind of commercialised it because that would make sense. But other than that, I kind of don't really understand why she thought they were so difficult. Maybe it was all about breath control and being that she's breathless, that was hard. <laughs> maybe yeah given i suppose given that she's a trained singer but it's still you know she's been doing it a while by this point so i, I, I just yeah, find the fact Simon, that she I, I i like singing these songs as opposed to pop songs like anyone who's actually just tried to sing along with them it is harder it's totally different it's really different there, there's a whole different breath control there's a whole different um discipline to sing these songs yeah there's a lot more scoring notes uh there's a lot oh more... yeah but they're not a perfectly sweetie todd are they like definitely it's, not it's not kind of like, do you know what i mean yeah. it's, it it's just i find it quite odd that she would have um would have found them so 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 difficult and so kind of jarring as two guys who have a bit of theater experience then were you what do you think madonna how do you think Madonna managed this? Did she pull it off? Because there is very mixed reviews around this album. Most people tend to applaud her determination to venture down this route and have a crack at it. Some people say that she just didn't have the vocal tools to pull this off. But I personally, I, I am amazed, especially when I look at the live performance uh, at the Oscars of Sooner or Later, which proves to me that you know the, the studio sound effects didn't get tweaked as much as one would think. What do you both think? Did she pull it off? I think she did for for the most part, absolutely. Like, you know, it wasn't exactly like a, what, what was tragic. Uh, oh, Peace Brosnan in Mamma Mia. It wasn't that bad. <laughs> but <laughs> but it was like it was decent, like enough track. Like if you listen to some of the tracks like, I don't know, uh, Hanky Panky, for example, a really jazzy, upbeat, fun little number, um, it's very camp and very bouncy. And she, she does that very, very well. But the sooner or later where it's sort of subdued and she has to have a lot more vocal control, you can hear in some essences in the performances where she wavers a bit um, and she's a bit unsure of the note that she's a bit meant to get to. But for the most part, I think she did well. But then again, I can't really critique anyone because I don't sing that well. So, there, yeah. yeah. <laughs> You're listening to Time to Talk. 
No, I, I actually really like her on the stuff on, on this album, specifically the Sondheim stuff. Because um, it is it is still, like, although I've just said, oh, it's really easy for Sondheim, it is still hard. And um, we hadn't seen that side of her at this point, really. Mm. So, you know, obviously, she went on to do a Vita later on, so she went on to have more singing coaching and sing a score that was even harder. But, you know, at, at this point, I think, yeah, I... I I've always thought that her voice sounded great, especially on What Can You Lose, which mm. is the sort of third song that Sondheim wrote that most people don't know, um, which is the duet with Manti Patinkin, who was obviously a massive Broadway actor at that point. Oh, yes. So I, I, I think she's wonderful. Mm-hmm. Madonna sells this album completely. Uh, every time I listen to it, like she, you know, her acting abilities aside, because <laughs> they are very questionable, in music she is able, just like Kylie, she's able to communicate a message and a meaning to a song that maybe others can't. There are some absolutely silly songs on here, and but my hand's right up there. I love the silly songs. Going Bananas. <laughs> yes. Going Bananas. Yes. What the I devil love, is that about? I love, that song. I love it. <laughs> and the performance of it on the Girly Show was so good. Yes. It's also into my favourite version of Lala's La Bonita ever. Like, I think that version of Oh, my God. I've never heard anyone else say that. That's exactly what I've been saying for as long as I can remember. And no, a lot of people look at me and like, what? Okay. But no, thank God. There are others. Stephen Sondheim was asked to do the whole uh, score for this film, right, Dick Tracy, and he went, uh-uh, not going to happen. However, he agreed to contribute, and I believe he actually wrote five songs, three of which ended up on the album. I have researched and can't yeah. find out if that is actually correct or not. Yeah, yeah that's the, the true. Two, um, are in kind of the background in uh-huh. two parts of the film. She doesn't sing them, that's somewhere somewhere uh-huh. else. Right. Oh, there's the mystery solved. But what I found interesting is that she took up, which she didn't have to, this, um, I think it ties into a little bit about what she was, she's always trying to achieve something out of every project. Here it was, she wanted to sell herself as an actor, prove to herself that she could act. She wanted to be a big screen legend. This was her chance. And with the comfort of the director and the cast, particularly Warren Beatty, uh, she felt that this was the right project. I understand they passed up some other amazing actresses um, or other actresses passed this over. So Madonna ended up with it. She took Union Wage, but she didn't have to write the soundtrack but she decided that she wanted to but i believe that she did get a bit overwhelmed at a few points early on in the project it was all done in three weeks apparently besides the sondheim numbers and she brought in her old pal patrick leonard from like a prayer and that was exciting obviously she likes to be surrounded a little bit by the familiar she likes to experiment too but she brought in her old friend here which to me is a little bit of an indicator about oh am i out of my depth i need people that I can trust around me at this stage. If without, you know, Patrick with her, we wouldn't have had like a uh, hanky panky or more, which, and also that was more was, sorry, more was sometime. Um, we wouldn't have hanky panky or a uh, crybaby. She'd written a track called back in business for that montage sequence in yes. Tracy when all the crooks come out and they take yeah. over the city. However, from what back I understand or what I read, Beatty was not pleased with this and brought in Sondheim to write a new version of it. I don't think he updated hers. I think he just wrote it specifically again with, you know, some booms and bangs to to mark those explosions and and to really get it into, you know, to match it with what the action was on the screen. Yeah, it's a completely different song and it's not even sung by her. 
Ah, is that right? Tell which us more. Which is quite a big It's I can't remember her name. It's sung by a woman. Uh, it's it actually used in um, quite a lot of Sondheim. Like it's in a Sondheim review show. Um, Janice Siegel. Uh-huh. So yeah, it's it's just a completely different song, and he must have wanted a song with that title, I imagine. So he must have given her yes. a brief. Yes. And she just didn't fulfill it. Hmm. Music. Which is a shame because I really like Back in Business. I think it's a really great, the, the Madonna one, I think it's a really great song. Yeah. Musically, I'm Breathless consists predominantly of jazz, swing, and pop tunes. The tracks reflected Madonna's showgirl personality and were influenced very much so by her relationship with Warren. And the singer, Madonna wanted to create music that would fit the style and production of the film, set in the days of that untouchable law enforcement. She sang the songs accordingly. This is interesting. She smoked cigarettes in order to portray the vocals of her character, Breathless. Mm. And there she is telling off Lola for that. An element of the way she recorded this album and the smoking and the kind of jazzy feel to it that kind of preceded parts of erotica as well i think you know obviously she took it even further with erotica where she got like a um an old microphone mm. and you know to, to kind of give it all that sort of phone sex vibe um and that kind of raw tone but i think that this was when she really started to try and inhabit like, you know it was, it was kind of the first thing that she did that was a complete concept yes which I think, you know, is, is why it's so niche, but also I think why it's so successful. Like Messy Like a Prayer was a concept, though. Mm. Um, not as much of a concept, though. I think this is like, this and Erotica were very much like concept albums. But when she also did Erotica, she also released the sex book as well. So it was almost like she was like method acting or method singing or method living, really, because everything in her life yeah. was changing at that uh, in those points. Now, even though we all agree this is a good album, was it right that it should have become a full section of the Blonde Ambition tour? Why not? It's part of her work. It's part of her catalogue. She has credit as writing most of the songs, if not all the songs, that Stone Time didn't write. So, I mean, if she owns them, hell yeah, she should. Why not? Simon, what do you make of the track Hanky Panky? Oh, I love Hanky Panky. I think I like it mostly because of the Blood and Ambition performance, which I think is incredible. Um, and I used to know the dance routine off by heart, and I used to do it in my living room. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Me too. <laughs> I can guarantee you that if you were to do some spanky spanky with Madonna nowadays, you'd risk losing your hand in the creases. Ooh. <laughs> Oh, come on. I mean, she's 108. I mean, she could put out a range of adult diapers called Hanky Panky. Oh, come on. on. She's already fallen off the stage and going coat hanging off her cape. Go easy on her. Can't be that that easy going backwards at that speed and hitting the ground. (laughs) Something like Hanky Panky, you could get away with being on the radio in the UK, whereas I think in America they would have been a bit like, oh, my God, what's she talking about? So in an interview, this is what she had to say about it. She had to... She had to tease and change anything, this is her quote, anything to do with sodomy, intercourse or masturbation to appease Disney. But all the double entendres she managed to slip into the final versions feels like a feat in itself. For example, she flips one chorus on He's a Man to Because I Can Show You Some Fun, and I Don't Mean With a Gun, or that line. You can probably guess which word she stresses in this line on Cry Baby. He acts like a real cockadoodle. 
<laughs> she can't even tell you why. And now on now that I'm following you, part two, she coos what could have been a quip from her director's cut of the movie. Dick, that's an interesting name. All right, here's a question for you both. What do you both think of uh, Warren Beatty actually uh, singing on this soundtrack as well mm. and apparently did it in one single take, which might show that he was completely disinterested. I don't know. Maybe he needed to go back. He sounded all right, though, didn't he? I, I applaud the fact he did it and kudos and all that, but it was just okay. You know, again, it wasn't as bad as Pierce Brosnan and Mamma Mia. I just want to put that out there. But, yeah, it was, was it? Oh, God, it's just so bad. It is just so absolutely abysmal. Anyway, but, yeah, he tried. So, yeah, yay, Warren Beatty. Now, we all know about Vogue, too, which was, you know, it was created as a song to be on the B-side of Keep It Together, uh, which was going to be mm-hmm. the final track of the Like a Prayer album, but ended up being, you know, this monster hit. What about this idea of it being included on I'm Breathless? Like, I get why they did it, commercial reasons, purely, surely. But should it have been there? It's so strangely placed. Well, I think with Warner Brothers wanting to squeeze every dollar for every studio recording they can ever do because uh, that's what Warner Brothers love to do is not waste any money um, at all, Um, even though they just did a whole bunch of reshoots and then did the Zack Snyder cut of Justice League, but moving on, um, not wanting to waste time or money, of course, um, and plus with she did Immaculate Collection coming out after I'm Breathless, so... Then there were so many great tracks on that album. If you, uh, I guess they didn't want it to be lost in that shuffle, maybe, perhaps. So putting it on this, it stands out because what does it do in there? It doesn't, you know, chronologically go. But it, because it is such a banger, it does stand out no matter what you do. So I think it was actually kind of smart in a way because, you know, the sheer uh, bizarre way that it is there is its own marketing. I don't think they were going to let her release such a high concept album with what they probably thought had no singles on it oh, without sticking no on commercial that, mm. Wow. Yeah, without sticking something that was commercial. I think that they probably heard the record and they were like, <laughs> what, we can't, what are we going to do with this? We can't do anything with this. Um, and that comes from a place of love from someone that really, really likes it. Um, That's a very yeah, cynical so, and also, it's so cynical. Yeah, she was only making I'm Breathless, so they, they had to tack it on there. Yeah. And it kind of, it is out of place, but there is something about it because it talks about, you know, the kind of Hollywood glamour and stuff. There is something mm-hmm. about it that mm-hmm. kind of makes sense. Mm-hmm. For me, it's a reminder. Um, it's like I listened to the whole album and it, it, I remember when I was a young lad and you're waiting for more Madonna, more of, more of what she'd served up before, and then you get this and... Uh, it took me a little while to get into it. I really did like it, but it took me a while to make sense of it because I hadn't listened to music like this before. So for me, Vogue was a reminder on this album of, yep, because it's the last track, isn't it, from memory, of the first Yeah, the last. The last. Last track, yep. So it's sort of a reminder of uh, I'm still here. The real Madonna still is. Don't worry. Sometimes amateurs know best, and a lack of professionalism is all you'll hear on the Time to Talk show. Join Tim and his panel of guests as they wade their way through a range of news, music, and pop culture treats. Time to Talk, the show hosted by amateurs for unprofessional listeners. Amateurs, is this the best that they could do? 
Mm. This is interesting. Patrick Leonard um, talked about making I'm Breathless with Madonna. He said it was like... It was like one a day for a little over a week, one song a day, he said. I'd play her something, she'd write some lyrics, then go in and she'd sing it. And I think in this case, many of those vocals were the final vocal. Then we just overdubbed the big band and orchestra in like one or two days. The three Sondheim songs, though, Sooner or Later, More and What Can You Lose, they were a completely different story, recorded separately from the sessions with Leonard and produced by another regular collaborator. For decades, Sondheim had been Posing music that would challenge even the top vocalists on Broadway and Madonna, by her own admission, was far from the best singer in the world. In interviews from the time, she was very open about the challenge that work presented. Hey, Will, what are the tracks on here that, that you skip to, that you keep listening to, and what are the ones that you skip over? Well, what I, one of my favourites is actually Moore. Um, one of my first ever musical theatre shows that I booked was 42nd Street. So Moore takes me back to those kind of days of auditions and stuff like that. And it's really fun and upbeat and, you know, really bouncing. I love it. Um, but then you get Hank, uh, Hank Panky as well, matches the same feel. But then you get something like Sooner or Later where it is a bit bluesy and a, a bit kind of a bit deeper. I, I, I love that. I love the nuance and I love just the – I just love that whole – the whole thing really what i kind of skip over <laughs> i don't really like back in business it's like uh, i'm just like yeah i yeah i know C- controversial yet brave i know that i am uh i just um it's just not for i just don't it's because it's not terrible it's just not for me for me i really really love what can you lose um that's one of my favorites on the album but then i'm a big fan of the now i'm following you duo if you want to call it that part one and part two i absolutely love because i've never seen it done in pop anywhere else and i love the fact that she translated this onto the stage where you know you get the scratched record in the middle and it goes from this awesome piece of music anyway into something really modern i absolutely love it i i find Track nine through to eleven and twelve, of course, which is Vogue, amazing. Like it's brilliant. Yeah, I agree. I I um was actually thinking as you were saying that I was thinking it had never really been done before. I remember being completely blown away and just being like, "What the hell is this? Like mm. this is yeah, it's it's crazy." And when all those Dick really Tracys worked. came out on stage, I mean, I find that for some reason I find yeah. that it's probably really campy, but I loved it. It was so fun when they all come out on stage. Well, I haven't. <laughs> I haven't seen that for years because it was cut out of the UK broadcast. Oh. Yeah, so I hadn't seen any of those until <laughs> probably about 10 years ago. Oh, sorry. Oh, sorry. A little bit. Cool, sorry. Because it's been so long since I'd also seen it as well. Um, I'm actually currently just on YouTube looking it up now. And uh, yeah, Australia had a bit of an edit as well because some of this I don't remember. We also have to give a shout-out to track six, Something to Remember, which, of course, became uh, the title of her 95 compilation album of, of love songs. And this is a beautiful mm. track as well, which, Something to Remember. I think that's really interesting, though, that that ended up being the title track of, of the sort of ballad greatest hits because it wasn't really particularly known at the time. At the time, when she was asked, what's your favourite album that you've ever recorded, she said, I'm Breathless is the work I'm most proud of. That was at that point in time. There was a lot more to come. I was, I was just about to say that. Mm, mm. 
she must still be very proud of this work. And it is a bit of a prelude to Evita too, where, like you said, Simon, before, she had to go and work on those vocals all over again and she was in tears and really looking forward to reviewing Evita. Some fascinating stories out of that era. Oh, yeah. Let's look at how this was critically received. Uh, Mark Cooper from Q Magazine. At the time, it was a June 1990 review, he wrote, It's something of a disappointment, this album, because the lady herself stays so firmly committed to a character who's less original than the persona she's evolved into during the 1980s. But I've read that one out, but there were lots of great uh reviews at the time as well lots of favorable ones most people say that they uh, um, adored the fact that she'd moved into this territory and had given it such a great crack and boy did she ever it's a great album she was probably really excited about doing something that was completely different like a prayer was really heavy for her like you know she hadn't done an album at that point that was so personal and you know what the perfect way to follow up doing a really really personal album is doing an album where you spend the entire thing playing a character i also have to mention before we go cry baby only because it's such a stupid song actually that um when my dog used to get um a bath by me would have the saddest face you've ever seen in your whole life the most sad face you've ever seen so (laughs) i filmed my dog getting a wash and me with the gloves giving her a big wash and uh, overdub this song over the whole thing. So whenever I hear Cry Baby, I just think of Polly, the dog. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, went, it went perfectly together, believe me. <laughs> she starts doing that silly theatrical cry at the end. <laughs> All right. I remember when I was, Sorry, like ahead. at the time when I was young, uh, Cry Baby was like my favourite song on the album. Oh. Well, yeah, it's like, I, again, it's not my, my favourite, but, I like the fact that it is silly, and I guess maybe because at the time when it came out, I was quite young as well. Um, I didn't see it as silly. I just saw it as reality because everything I did was a bit silly, period, and still to this day is. So, <laughs> but I think I, I, yeah, I think it's really. I think it's, even the goofy cry, I I love. Yeah, I mean, it, to me, even just for the Stephen Sondheim stuff, um, especially if you consider yourself a music fan and you don't know who he is. Um, then you know, even just for that, it's worth it. But I think the rest of the work is really solid. Like, I think it's a really, really good album. I, you know, you could even ignore Vogue and still have a good time. Um, yeah, I, th- I definitely think it's worth listening to. <laughs> uh, to in, well, yeah, even if you did ignore Vogue, which we all can agree cohesively that that is impossible to do, uh, it is a very, very, very good um thing to it's a very good album to listen to uh, nostalgia wise take yourself back to the 90s when this came out uh, and really enjoy the fact that this is what we watched and what we listened to and how different it was for her as an artist to be this way full method singing or method acting if you will with voice um i think it is definitely worth the trek down memory lane for sure and listen to the whole thing, people. Don't just go and do a random skip. You won't get it. It needs to be listened to as a work. By the way, shout out to Stephen Sondheim for still being alive. Born in 1930, Simon. Hell yeah. I know. It's crazy, isn't it? Have you seen him life? recently, though? No, tell me. You, you. It does kind of look a little bit like he's dead. <laughs> like he's had strokes and stuff and like only one side of his face works and like, but he's still there and he's still, do you know that the most, the most amazing thing for me about Sondheim is he's still writing. Hey. He should compose his funeral. Oh, wow. Wow. That's really morbid. 
He strikes me as the sort of person that might have done. <laughs> <laughs> and it'll probably be the best thing done in years because, you know, the last few things that he's done, he's done haven't um, been as sort of commercially su- or critically successful. Yeah, but could you imagine how quick as, those uh, eulogies will be? They could actually just play Cry Baby as he's put down into the hole. <laughs> Oh, oh, sorry. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for joining us, guys. It's been fun. Thank you for Thank having you us. Much. Thank you.